Welcome to In the Booth, a Frederick News Post podcast exploring the 2016 races to represent Frederick County. This has been an election year like no other, both around the county and around the country. Here, we'll explore issues important to Frederick County voters, from third-party candidates to overcrowded roads and classrooms to presidential politics. I'm Danielle Gaines, here with my co-host, Andy Schatz. Hello. And we are In the Booth. Glad Hill Furniture is the only place you need to visit. Save big by taking half off all leather furniture store-wide. And this month, you can also take advantage of 24 months 0% financing. Stop by and visit one of our expert design consultants and get luxury for less. Jamie Raskin is a progressive Democrat who has represented Montgomery County in the state Senate since 2006. Raskin, a constitutional law professor at American University, was the state Senate's floor leader for bills that expanded marriage rights to same-sex couples and abolished the death penalty. Raskin has also argued for bipartisan multi-state legislation to end political gerrymandering in Maryland and Virginia. In November, he won the Democratic nomination for Maryland's 8th District in what was the most expensive primary race in the country. If elected to the U.S. House, Raskin wants to pursue a Green Deal for the country, an infusion of funding for infrastructure to make improvements in an environmentally sustainable way. Raskin, a first-time candidate for Congress, stopped by In the Booth to discuss his campaign. Okay, welcome. Thank you, Danielle. Delighted to be with you. Thank you. Um, we're glad to have you. And, you know, not all of our listeners probably have had a chance to meet you in person yet. So if you could just start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is Jamie Raskin. Uh, I'm a professor of constitutional law at American University, and I've been the state senator from Silver Spring and Tacoma Park, District 20, for the last decade. I'm the majority whip of the Senate. I serve on the Judicial Proceedings Committee. I chair uh, the Ethics Committee for the Senate. Um, and I chair the Executive Nominations Committee, which reviews all of the governor's appointments to executive and judicial office. And after a decade in the Senate, why did you decide you wanted to run for Congress? Well, um, I think that I've been part of some amazing changes in the history of our state. I was the floor leader for marriage equality, and I'm very proud of that. Um, I was involved in restoring voting rights for former prisoners. I was very proud of that. I've been involved in the big environmental um, legislation that we've done. I've really fought to try to deal with the effects of climate change in reducing greenhouse gas emissions in our state. Uh, I worked with our great Attorney General Brian Frosch to uh, place a ban on military-style assault weapons and to impose reasonable gun, gun safety regulation in the state. And so I feel like I've been part of some dramatic changes. But when uh, Chris Van Hollen called me up, he said, uh, Senator Mikulski is stepping down. I'm going to run for Senate. Will you endorse me? I said, not only will I endorse you, I'll run for your seat. I knew immediately it was something I wanted to do because I feel as if so much of the progress we've made on those various issues um, is put at risk by the paralysis in Washington. And I have gained some skills in working across the aisle and working closely both with the Democrats in my caucus, but also with uh, Republicans, including some Republicans from Frederick County, um, in getting uh, important things done like criminal justice reform, like budget transparency legislation, and so on. And I'd like to go to Washington and have the same kind of impact. 
is that a literal retelling of what happened? Congressman Van Hollen telling you he was planning to run and you deciding on the spot? On the spot. I told him what was funny was right afterwards, uh, I started to tell my colleagues in the Senate and my colleagues at AU Law School and my wife and my kids and everybody said, you're crazy. You know, why, why would you leave being majority whip for the Democrats in the Senate? You're getting all this legislation done. More than 100 of my bills had been passed by the General Assembly. Um, why would I leave that to go down to Congress where it's just impasse and bad vibes and, you know, no real action? And at the beginning, I said, well, you know, I'm a middle child. I like to bring people together. I'm pretty good at compromise and moving things forward. Now, when people ask me, I just have a more defined answer. And I say, look, the premise of your question is that people of goodwill have got to give up on Congress. And, you know, even with the gerrymandering and the big money and Citizens United and all these problems we've got to deal with, it's still our Congress. This is still a democracy that we're struggling to be. And I want to go there and fight to make things better, to improve the way Congress uh, is operating and to get done all of the essential things we need to get done on climate change, on gun safety, on universal background checks for gun purchasers, on the environment, on investment in the infrastructure. You know, in this campaign, the major mantra I have been uttering is that we need a green deal in America because we have underinvested in the infrastructure, the roads, the highways, 270, uh, the parks, the water systems, look at Flint, Michigan, um, cybersecurity, all of it has been neglected and we need to invest in it in a very deep way, but in a way that advances our, our environmental goals. So that's why I'm calling for a green deal. Let's, let's invest massively in America and in our infrastructure, but in a way that moves the ball forward in terms of breaking from uh, the carbon gas economy and moving into the renewable energy future that is going to save us all. Uh, you talked briefly about paralysis in D.C. now. Um, what do you think things are going to be like after this presidential election? It seems like this is very likely going things are going to end up more divisive, both within the electorate and within the chambers themselves. Well, it depends on what happens in the election. I mean, I am hoping for and I'm praying for and I'm working very hard every day for not just a victory for Clinton, Van Hollen, Raskin and the Democratic team, um, but for a massive victory, a landslide victory that that gives Congress uh, back to the Democrats. And if you, if you think there was a landslide victory that Republicans and Democrats would work better together? Yes, I think that um, that Donald Trump and the extreme right wing forces, including his campaign manager, that have been brought into the mainstream of American politics need to be decisively repudiated by the American people. I mean, these are, this is a campaign that from the beginning has run on um, anti-Mexican racism, anti-Muslim rhetoric, immigrant bashing, uh, sexism, calling women pigs and slobs and so on, misogyny, appealing to the absolute basest impulses in the public. And this cannot be a fair reflection of who we are as a people in America. So this goes way beyond just a partisan battle. To me, this is a referendum on the future of the country. And, you know, every four years, we like to go out and tell people this is the most important election of our lifetime. And I'm telling everybody, forget that. This is the most important election of our lifetime, bar none. Uh, and any result other than a landslide uh, for the Democrats, to me, is unthinkable in terms of where it takes the country. Do you think that that message 
uh, plays a part in in races down the ballot? Is is Trump a significant factor in your race? Well, I mean, in the sense that I'm a leading campaigner against Trump and everything that he stands for. Um, of course, it's constantly shifting what he stands for, but I think we get a pretty good sense of where he is. Um, but, you know, you know, my opponent is, you know, uh, has been raffling off uh, AR-15 weapons on his website to raise money for his campaign. And I'm a person who was instrumental in passage of Maryland's great gun safety law. So we've got a very clear distinction. I mean, I think the NRA has been Trump's biggest, most ardent proponent. I mean, no matter what Trump says, no matter how far he goes off the deep end in terms of you know, racism or misogyny or whatever it is, it's always the NRA that's with them. And so I think I'm running against that worldview. So yeah, I, I think that this is a, a campaign that really is asking Americans to choose sides. Um, but it's not a question of political parties, really. I mean, what we've got here, I think, is um, a, a campaign on the Democratic side that stands for the best values of the country, diversity, inclusion, progress for everybody, equal pay for equal work, environmental protection. I mean, this is where you know, civilization has to go. And on the other side, we have people who are denying the existence of climate change, who want to have no reasonable gun safety regulation. There are people over on that side who deny that the, um, the catastrophic attack in Newtown, Connecticut even took place, the same way they're denying that uh, the, the climate system has been destabilized uh, by virtue of greenhouse gas emissions. So, um, you know, we've got to choose between um, rationality, enlightenment, progress, science, and then um, a campaign that has organized itself around no-nothingism and the most reactionary impulses that anybody has brought forward in national politics for more than a half century. So, um the a little a little closer to home, but um, something that kind of touches on the same issues. The voters in the eighth district are, on the whole, a lot different than your current constituents in Silver Spring and Tacoma Park. What are you doing during this campaign to try to get to know the people who live in the more northern parts of the eighth district and learn what matters to them? Well, so um, that's a great question because. Um, <clears throat> you know, d during the primary campaign, um, I personally knocked on more than 13,000 doors. Uh, I think the campaign knocked on more than 30,000 doors. We had 169 events in people's living rooms and backyards, including a bunch of them in Frederick County and in uh, Carroll County. In fact, yesterday I was at um, Ken Kerr's house. You know, he's running for school board here, and he'd had an event for me uh, during the primary where we had about 75 or 100 people came. And actually, my friend Jim Hightower, the former uh, agriculture commissioner and railroad commissioner from Texas, had come up to talk about rural populism, um, and we had a, a great day then. But, you know, there's no substitute for going out and knocking on doors and meeting people. And anywhere where people invite me to go, I go. Um, and, uh, you know, that's it's been a great challenge. Obviously, I did a much better job of getting around in Montgomery County where the houses and the apartments are much closer. And so you can cover a lot more ground in a day than you can out here in Frederick or in Carroll where it's so spread out and especially the Democrats are spread out. 
um, and it's just harder to find them. Um, but I've been using the time since the primary victory uh, to spend even more time up here in Frederick and Carroll. And we are going from um, this lovely interview over to open the coordinated Democratic campaigns uh, headquarters um, in Frederick County, mm -hmm. in the, which is going to be in the city. You touched on some of the transportation issues that are very important to this area, and I'd like to hear what you think about both Interstate 270 and Metro. What specific ideas do you have for improving both of them? Well, in my district, I've been the champion of uh, building the Purple Line, which is going to be a very important addition to the transportation network um, in the metropolitan area. You know, so much of it was built on kind of the— um, you know, the, the north-south principle of the trains just running into the city and coming back out, and the Purple Line is going to help to connect us east-west, beginning, you know, with University of Maryland, New Carrollton, over to Silver Spring, Tacoma Park, to, to Bethesda, and so on. So um, that's been a very important part of what I have worked on. Um, look, the, the metro um, is part of the infrastructural neglect that uh, I was talking about before. I mean, this is the metro for, you know, what should be the greatest metropolitan area in the world. Uh, it transports about half of the federal workforce, tens of thousands of people who live in my district, an 8th congressional district. Um, and we need a real investment um, from the federal government and not just in infrastructure, but in the operations. And so that's one of the things that I want to work on there. And I think that the the widening of 270 is clearly something that's got to be on the agenda in terms of us looking at that and figuring out if we can make that investment so we can go forward with it. How often do you use Metro? Um, well, right now, I, I'm driving either to Annapolis, and Metro doesn't work there, or to American University, uh, where I teach. And um, so I've mostly been driving there, but I use the Metro all the time on the weekend. Um, and as a kid growing up, uh, I was an absolute metro addict. I mean, I, I would literally go ride the metro just to be on the metro and to go see my friends. And when it was built, um, it opened up people's lives. I mean, it was amazing to be able to have that kind of uh, access to different parts of the region that we live in. And I want to recover for new generations that sense of excitement and possibility about you know, what the metro represents. Have you experienced some of the same frustrations as other riders? Do? Absolutely. Right. Well, look, if right now, but I live about three blocks from the metro, which is one of the reasons why we decided to locate where we did. We're in Tacoma Park, and um, I am, um, I think, six or seven metro stops away from where I'd be working um, if the voters of the 8th District sent me to Washington. Um, and I hope very much to be able to ride the metro to work. In some sense, I, other than maybe Eleanor Holmes Norton, I'd live closest to the capital of anybody uh, in the United States, but uh, it's got to get me there on time. I can't be in a two-hour delay on the metro, So, but I, I feel like it's going to be very important for me to be riding the metro, to know what people are going through, and to be able to complain and intervene whenever I can to make sure that we are getting the necessary repairs. But, I, I, you know, the new general manager, I think, has uh, been applying himself in a very effective and focused way on making these repairs, and I'm all behind him. On uh, another issue you touched on a few minutes ago is um, criminal justice reform. I know I talked to you about that a lot this past year. Um, what, if any, reforms do you think should be taking place on a federal level, on a national level? 
Well, um, in Maryland, we've done a great job um, in just the last couple of years of transferring resources from incarceration of low-level drug offenders into um, the into prevention, treatment, education, and then also dealing with the serious offenders. And I think that's precisely the public philosophy that I would bring to Washington. Um, we do not need to be spending hundreds of millions or billions of dollars a year going after people for marijuana offenses. In a lot of parts of the country, it's now legal. And medical marijuana has been legalized in a majority of the jurisdictions in the country. Um, and um, so to me, that's just a waste of scarce law enforcement resources when we've got a crisis uh, with heroin and a crisis of terribly serious drugs that are actually killing our children. Um, and I don't advocate marijuana use, tobacco use, alcohol use by anybody, especially children and especially my children in case they're listening. Um, I, I don't want that to happen. But having said that, we had our experience with prohibition and it didn't work. And all prohibition did was to build up the power of organized crime and the mafia, drive up the price of liquor and alcohol and make it more dangerous. The way that we dealt with it, we said it will be legal, but it will be regulated. It will be closely regulated. Um, and so I think that we have a much better chance of getting a hold of uh, the marijuana problem dealing with that way. Meanwhile, we can use our real law enforcement resources to crack down on, on the drugs that are killing people in places like Frederick County um, and Montgomery County and Carroll County on a weekly basis. Um, we're losing more people annually in heroin overdoses than we're losing to homicide. Do you think that, like, what specifically could the federal government do when it comes to issues of opioid addiction or opioid deaths? Well, you know, but I, before I came here, we were just over at what was formerly the Youth Ranch, or it's called the Youth Ranch, you know, um, that the, the sheriffs used to have. And they've shifted over to be an alcohol and drug rehabilitation center. They're having a problem uh, because um, there's, there's funding for intensive inpatient care, but not intensive outpatient care. Uh, and so the insurance companies won't cover it. So they get these desperate calls from people all over the state saying our kids have gotten involved, you know, with heroin, with opioid, with terrible drugs, and they would like them to go to a program, but they can't afford it, and it's not covered by the insurance companies. And I think that's something that, you know, I want to look at immediately. Why is it not being covered? And, you know, what can the federal government do to facilitate a real investment in programs like that that intervene early so that we're not seeing this death toll of young people uh, who are getting sucked under, um, you know, by a, a bunch of vicious drug dealers who are selling them, um, you know, the, you know these these lethal drugs. How would you advocate for <coughs> fun, federal funding for agencies in the Eighth District? Um, well, I would advocate ardently and passionately and on a nonstop basis. Um, look, we've got great federal agencies here. I mean, take NIH. Um, or FDA, or NOAA, or NIMH. I mean, these are um, entities that are essential to the public health uh, in America. They're essential to um, the kind of economy and culture that we want um, to grow. And so some of the needs that they have are very um, routine and commonplace, having to do with traffic and, you know, law enforcement, stuff like that. And some of them have to do with getting funding, uh, for, um, you know, the programs that are going to be essential for the development of 
um, new health research, health policy research, biomedical, um, and so on. And, um, you know, I have learned as a state senator that there, there's no substitute for just being very aggressive in lobbying your colleagues and going after the things that you need. And we have an, an incredible story to tell with all of the federal agencies and departments that are located in uh, the 8th Congressional District. What do you um, think about issues like um, Congress leaving town before giving approval for more Zika funding? Well, <clears throat> I mean, I've got to say this is one reason I'm glad that I've spent a decade in Annapolis, because doing something like that from the standpoint of a person in state politics is just unthinkable. Um, you know, we were there for 90 days. Um, it's a short, compressed, intense period of time. We're working 8, 10, 12, 14, 16 hours a day to get it all done. And we're passing hundreds of bills, and we're trying to be as focused and as careful as possible. Um, but we have a sense of a beginning, a middle, an end on sine die. And um, you simply don't put these things off. So when we've got, you know, an emergency public health crisis, like with the Zika virus, uh, the idea that Congress would say, well, no, we're going to go home for four or five days or a week or two weeks or whatever it might be to campaign, it strikes me as just unfathomable. I mean, you know, I don't want to be part of that. Now, I've, I confess that it will be a little bit easier for me to take a hard line on that because I'm going to be sleeping at home and I'm going to be with my constituents every single day and evening. I will be here. And I know some of the other members are eager to get back to California or Wisconsin or Alaska or whatever it might be. But that just puts a burden on all of us to be really serious and disciplined about doing the work that the public has sent us to Washington to do. This year is the 15th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Do you feel that we are safer or are there more dangers? Um, how, how has the landscape changed? Well, I mean, that day, of course, is indelibly etched in my mind, as with everybody else who lived through it uh, around here and across the country. Um, you know, um, obviously, there have been lots of improvements in terms of what we call homeland security. Um, you know, we've not suffered anything like the kind of devastating attacks that we saw in 9-11 um, but at least at the hands of you know foreign terrorists. I mean, if I mean if you look at gun violence attacks, of course we have continued to experience domestic homegrown terror in the same way, and so that's part of the reason that I'm so passionate about dealing with the gun safety issue. So we don't continue to see episodes like Virginia Tech um, and. Um, you know, the recent attacks in, in Florida and the, the, the attacks in, uh, you know, Charleston and so on. Um, so in that sense, you know, all of us remain intensely vulnerable to gun violence. And there are things that we can do about that that don't impair in any way anyone's Second Amendment rights. And the Supreme Court has done us a favor because it's said, look, what does your Second Amendment rights include? It includes a right to a handgun for self-defense in the home, and it includes the right to a rifle for the purposes of hunting and recreation. You don't need assault weapons for those purposes, much less do we need to say that there should be no background checks on people who have no business getting guns in the first place. And so even the justices who were most emphatic about the Second Amendment right being a personal right disconnected from militia service, 
you know, from being in a militia National Guard, and I accept that. Um, even those justices have said none of that is to say that you can't have common sense gun safety regulation. So the NRA has really driven us on an extreme right-wing tangent on this. So I think we need to get back to a common sense middle where the NRA used to be in the 60s and early 70s before it got taken over by partisans who wanted to use gun issues as a wedge in the American political culture. Um, we've got to get back to common sense gun safety to deal with that issue. Now, in terms of terrorism around the world, um, we have um, we have new struggles. I mean, al-Qaeda is not as big a problem uh, today as, as is ISIS in the Islamic State, but we still have uh, radical Islamic terrorist ideology. It, you know, ISIS is basically like a death cult, which recruits these young people. It enslaves and rapes women um, and has set itself at war against civilization. And so we've got to do everything in our power, and part of it is military, and a lot of it is financial, cutting off the sources of funding for al-Qaeda and ISIS, and a lot of it is intellectual and ideological. We've got to stand up for what America really is. It's not a war between our religion and their religion. It's not Christianity versus Islam. It is a struggle between the first Enlightenment country on earth, America, which was conceived in the separation of church and state, the freedom of conscience, the freedom of worship, the freedom of thought, the freedom of speech, and which has opened its arms to the whole world. So you have people who come over here from every place on earth, and if they were back in their home countries, they would be at, um, at odds with, they would be fighting with to kill people who here in America, they open a restaurant across the street from. You know, and that's the magic and the beauty of America, that the people who come here become Americans and we are not identified by our religion or our sect. Um, and we have separated church and state and we have built a society that's based on the principles of equal rights for everybody and freedom for everybody. That's the story that we've got to tell because ISIS and al-Qaeda, um, I mean, it's like the people who are selling, selling uh, heroin to our kids in high schools here. They're selling death. It is a death cult. Um, and we have got to stand up for what's great about America. Do you think that Americans have lost some of their constitutional rights in the pursuit of homeland security? Um, you know, you almost would have to go social domain by domain. You know, I mean, if you're in the airport, you know, is it a different experience today than it was two decades ago in terms of having to take off your belt and take off your shoes? And to, um, yeah, it's a more invasive experience. Is that something I think most people are willing to accept as a trade-off to go on an airplane and to feel a greater sense of security? I do. I think most people are willing to accept that. I think where the questions come uh, kind of in a much more complicated way uh, is when we have surveillance, uh, like the NSA surveillance, and uh, people feel as if their emails and their telephones, telephone records and so on are not safe from public inspection. And so uh, obviously it's a, it's a challenge because uh, w there are real enemies out there and we've got to deal with them. But at the same time, we've got to stand up and champion what's great about America, which is our commitment to the freedom of everybody. What did you think about the release of NSA documents by Edward Snowden? You know, um, the, the the documents that, that came out um, showed information that should have been public uh, originally. That doesn't mean that he necessarily 
did the right thing. And uh, he obviously has a, a hard, hard price to pay for what he did. Um, but, you know, in a democracy, the people have the right to know what the government is doing. Um, and so I do believe that, um, you know, w- that that citizens across the board have a right to know um, what levels of surveillance are taking place um, with different technologies that people use. Uh, shifting gears a little bit. Sorry. <laughs> um, I want to talk to you a little bit about women's issues. Uh, there could be a fundamental shift in the Maryland congressional delegation, um, s- meaning that with the departure of Barbara Mikulski, there could be no women as part of the delegation, depending on the way this election goes. So how, what would you, as a, as a white man, as part of an all-male delegation, do to make sure that you're representing um, the issues of women and, to an extent, also the issues of minorities? So, you know, I'm a great um, champion of feminism. My mom was a huge feminist and a women's writer. Uh, I'm married to the Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, Sarah Bloom Raskin, who's the highest ranking woman in the history of the U.S. Treasury Department. I have two daughters and one son. Um, and, um, I, you know, obviously I don't see America as divided between men and women. I think all of us are in families and social groups and communities where men and women are together. I mean, having said that, I think it would be uh, much better to have higher uh, representation of women in public office, and that's something I fought for. But in order to do that in a smart way, you need to have a structural approach to it. Um, The reason why the Maryland General Assembly has pretty good representation is because we have multi-member districts for delegates. So like my district, District 20, we have one senator and three delegates, and so that's what it's like in most of the state. And what happens is the people form teams to run, and it would just be crazy to form teams of four white men to run. That's not an effective way to get elected to office. So, you know, in our district now, uh, we have Sheila Hickson, who's the first woman who's chaired the House Ways and Means Committee, Will Smith, who's a young African-American, David Moon, who's Asian-American, and me, I am a middle-aged white guy, straight white guy, even. You know, so uh, the, so there's representation, you know, sort of um, across the board. And I think multi-member districts produce that kind of diversity better than single-member districts do. I mean, a lot of people are saying, well, with Senator Mikulski going, um, shouldn't people vote for Donna Edwards over Chris Van Hollen in order to keep that going? And, I, and my point is it's one fair concern, but it's not the only concern. I think that you look for a lot of things. You look for someone who's going to represent your values. You're going to look for constituent service. You put together a whole mixture of things, you know. And in my race, I, you know, I ran in a race of nine people. Um, it was the most expensive congressional primary in American history. Um, and um, lots of the candidates were my friends. Uh, Anisol Gutierrez, uh, a woman who's had an amazing public policy career. Um, Kathleen Matthews, who never held public office before, but has done very good stuff as a reporter and a business person. And I said to people, I said, look, if you think that either of them is better qualified than me, then vote for them. If you think I'm better qualified, vote for me. And if you think it's a tie, vote for one of them. And I, I meant it. If you think it's a tie, then I would say then go to the gender question. But if we want to be serious about it, you've got to make structural changes. You know, I just got back from the Democratic Convention where I spent a couple of days. Half of the delegates are women and half are men. We just set it up that way. Even the Republicans do it that way. 50-50. 
it's set up and nobody complains about it. Nobody thinks it's sexist or whatever. I mean, so there are changes that we can make structurally. Um, 2020 is going to be the um, the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. That's a very big deal. And I would like us to use 2020 as a target for coming up for some structural reforms so we can empower more people to get elected office. The other part of your question, forgive me, Danielle, uh, was about um, representing non-white people, racial minorities. And, you know, I've been the state senator from District 20, which is a majority African-American and Hispanic district for a decade. Um, and I believe I've been a passionate, zealot advocate for all of my constituents. I was rated the most responsive elected official in Montgomery County. When people call me, I call them back and I ask them what they need and what we can do to serve them. And that's sort of at the micro level. And at the macro level, I've been a very strong champion for uh, civil rights. Uh, I introduced the legislation that created the first jury trial in uh, civil rights employment discrimination cases in the state without having to go through an administrative law process. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been a champion on criminal justice reform, the kind of reforms that have helped um, a disproportionately minority population behind bars. Um, I was the floor leader for abolition of the death penalty. We, you know, we had um, five people on death row, and all of them were on death row for, um, for having committed homicide against whites when three-quarters of the people who are the victims of homicide in the state are African-American or Hispanic. So it's a system that was clearly operating in a racially tilted way. So I think I've got a strong civil rights record, and I hope to go to Congress and to pursue civil rights, civil liberties, and the, um, the rights and the values of all my constituents. Since uh, you were in, as you mentioned, a uh, <clears throat> primary race that involved a lot of money flowing, I believe it was the most expensive race in the country. In uh, history. In, in, in history. Yeah. Um, were there any implications there for campaign finance reform? Well, I, you know, I was joking about how by the end of the campaign, everybody in the campaign was for public financing. I'm not sure if everybody was, but, you know, um, you know, it, it places enormous demands on you to go out and raise the money. But, uh, you know, one thing that I said that I was not going to do is to sit at a phone all day and just call wealthy people I didn't know and beg for money. So that's why we ended up with the 169 events in people's homes. I said, let's go out and we will go talk to people about the issues of the campaign and we'll explain why we need the money and we'll ask them for what we can get. And so we would raise, you know, four or five or six thousand dollars at a party with 50 or 60 or 70 people. Um, not as much as you might be able to raise if you're just calling donors in Hollywood or New York or something where you find big bastions of money. Um, but it was a much more effective way to go politically. It was consistent with our values. But I, I do think that, um, you know, my campaign showed you don't need to raise the most amount of money to win. You don't have to spend the most amount of money to win. But you do need to raise enough money to, to kind of pierce the sound barrier and get through to your core constituency. And so that's why I like the proposal that Congressman John Sarbanes has introduced for small donor financing. He calls it the Government by the People Act. But basically, you get enough small donor contributions, and then public financing kicks in, and then you're able to go spend your time just out doing regular campaigning and not spending so much time just you know looking for the richest people you can find. Something else you touched on a minute ago was um, gerrymandering. 
So I know you've had legislation um, before on the state level, and the 8th District has figured pretty prominently in an ongoing federal lawsuit for political gerrymandering. Um, Do you think that there is space for a federal or national solution to gerrymandering? Yeah, I think there's got to be. Look, the, the problem today is that redistricting is gerrymandering. Because anytime a group of politicians sit down in any state capital and draw the districts for Congress or state legislature, um, they know exactly what the partisan implications and meaning is, just like you do when you watch them do it. I mean, if you think that um, there's going to be a congressional or a state legislative map that comes out of uh, Annapolis or Richmond or Albany and the politicians aren't going to know, which districts are Democrat and which districts are Republican, you're too innocent to be let out of the House by yourself. I mean, that's, that, that's what the politicians know more than anything, right? Um, so the question then is, how do we move away from single-member districting? One way you could do it is to go back to what took place in the country for a long time, which was electing representatives in multi-member districts, like what we do for delegate um, here in the state. You could elect, in Maryland, you could have two super districts of four representatives each. Um, And so rather than needing to get 50% of the vote in a single member district, you could need basically like 25% of the vote in one of these four person districts. That's gonna allow uh, Republicans to elect some people in places like Montgomery and Prince George's County. It's gonna allow Democrats to elect some people in more conservative parts of the state like the Eastern Shore and Western Maryland, as it should be. I don't think that the Republicans in Montgomery and Prince George's County should never be able to vote for somebody who's going to represent their interests any more than I think that Democrats who live in the Eastern Shore or Western Maryland should never be able to elect somebody who represents them. So there there are political science methods of doing this that most of the democracies on earth have arrived at, and we're the ones still stuck in this silly old single-member district gerrymandering mode, and we've got to get away from that. Now, um, I've been looking for different ways to break out of it. One, uh, as you were suggesting, Danielle, was the, the proposal that I advanced for a Potomac Compact, which I introduced in the last session, to say, okay, look, um, in v- Virginia, uh, a Republican minority has gerrymandered a Democratic majority into near oblivion. That's, that's a state that has a Democratic governor. Every statewide constitutional officer is a Democrat two Democratic U.S. senators elected statewide, and Obama won twice. It's a Democratic state. And yet, because the Republicans control the legislature, they keep gerrymandering themselves into power. And in their congressional delegation, there are 11 seats, and eight of them are held by Republicans, and three are held by Democrats. Now, similarly, in Maryland, this is a Democratic state, so it's a Democratic majority, but it's a Democratic majority that is also nearly gerrymandered Republicans into oblivion. Although I got to say the 6th Congressional District is one that was made more competitive in the last redistricting, not less competitive. So it could go either way. So, But in any event, um, neither operates on a principle of proportional representation. And if we want to move closer to that, let's get the two states together. We have dozens of compacts between Maryland and Virginia about the Potomac River, about the metro, that we do lots of things together. Why don't we say we will move away from partisan gerrymandering of single-member districts together will create one interstate redistricting commission, no politicians, all citizens from each state, Democrats, Republicans, independents, and experts, and they will draw the districts, and neither of them will go into effect until both legislatures have adopted 
the plans. And so when they do, then we'll have, you know, we will be, at least be able to make progress in terms of moving in the right direction. Otherwise, I think it's a lot of political posturing. You know, in in Virginia, the Democrats say this isn't fair. You've, you know, given us three seats out of uh, 11 seats. That that makes no sense. We want reform. And the Republicans say, no, no, no reform. They're not doing it anywhere else. In Maryland, you know, Governor Hogan says, well, we need reform here because the, the Republicans have been disadvantaged. Look, if we're going to be serious about it, then say, all right, let's try to go together. You know, let's hold hands and jump and we could show the rest of the country this could be done and come on in. The the water's fine. We, we, there's a way to, there's a better way to do this. Mm-hmm. And just really quickly, if you are elected to represent one of those districts, would you still support that possibly changing? But absolutely. Through redistricting yeah. I mean, I okay. think there's a very important principle at stake here. I think that the federal role has got to be to to create a commission that investigates what are the best methods for getting us out of the gerrymandering crisis. And I should say um, that um, it's true that both sides do this, but the reality is that gerrymandering has become the linchpin of Republican control of the U.S. House of Representatives. In 2012, uh, more than 1.4 million uh, Americans more voted for Democrats for Congress across the country than for Republicans, but the Republicans ended up with 33 more seats than we did in the U.S. House, precisely because they controlled more than 30 of the state legislatures, and they sliced and diced the districts. And so you get states like Ohio and Virginia and North Carolina, where you know the Democrats are winning statewide, Obama's winning, and so on, and yet the Republicans come back with a better than two-to-one advantage in terms of the uh, House delegations. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we've covered several topics. Is there anything that we haven't addressed that you think is important for voters to know? Um, let's see. Um, no, just that um, uh, it's a big district, obviously. All of the congressional districts are big, you know, 750,000 or more uh, people. There's a lot of territory to cover, but I'm very eager to get out and to meet people um, uh, in their communities at the fairs and parades and so on. And so uh, I look forward to meeting as many people as possible before. Uh, our big, big election on November 8th, and then coming back as frequently as I can. I understand uh, as uh, a candidate uh, who lives in Montgomery County, I've got a special responsibility to try to get up here in Frederick and, and Carroll to, to meet my other constituents and to be responsive to the, the local communities here. And where can people go to learn more about your campaign? Just go to jamieraskin.com. Great. And you can reach me through the uh, website. Great. Thank you for coming. Thank totally you. my pleasure. In the Booth is produced by Graham Cullen, Chris Sands, Jeremy Bauerwolf, and myself. Our theme music is courtesy of FNP reporter and rocker Kelsey Luce. If it's politics and it's Frederick, we hope you'll join us for the conversation in the booth.